I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. I just spoke with Agnieszka Helman-Vajny about her new book, The Archaeology of Tibetan Books. This came out with Brill in 2014, and it is a book that you can get a lot out of if you are an expert in Tibetan studies, and you can get a lot out of if you know nothing about Tibetan studies. It's a book that is deeply and profoundly interdisciplinary in its approach to understanding books as material objects. And what Agnieszka does is she she brings together interviews with Tibetan craftsmen and artists, her own experience as an artist um, and as a book and paper maker um, in terms of experimenting with techniques that she is studying, and also a history of uh, and really close and careful and detailed work with book collections um, from various places across China, Tibet, and Central Asia, including libraries and collections in Europe, in uh, North America, and beyond. So it's an amazing just depth of research that went into this study. What it does is gives us not only a history of bookmaking and papermaking techniques in Tibet, but also a really fine-grained material analysis of, I mean, everything from the pigments, um, the paper, and the paper-making techniques, what kinds of fibers are characteristic of what kinds of paper used in certain kinds of books from certain kinds of places, um, the kinds of materials that go into the ink. Um, It's just an amazingly detailed appreciation of and study of books as materials and as objects. And if you read the book, um, as I had the chance to do just a little while ago, it really does change the way you see books, um, way, the way you observe and you know appreciate them, not just as objects, but also as text. So Agnieszka was really generous about um, making the time to talk with me about it. It was a lot of fun, and I hope you enjoy. Thank you for listening. I'm here today to talk with Agnieszka Helman-Vajny about her new book, The Archaeology of Tibetan Books. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Agnieszka, and thanks so much for making time to talk with me today. I'm super excited about this. I think it's a book that is really important, not just for East Asian studies, but also for the history of the book and for the history of material objects. So welcome. Uh, Welcome. Hello, Carla. Thank you very much for inviting me here. I'm really it's a great pleasure to be with you. So, Agnieszka, can you t- uh, start us off, as is traditional for the channel, by saying a little bit about what brought you to the field? And specifically, how did you come to work on Tibet and in Tibetan studies? Mm-hmm. Oh, first of all, I should tell you that I'm not a Tibetologist really at all. I'm, I started as artist, so from the point of creation of the art, then I uh, moved to the field of history and science. So I uh, was, uh, I, I am a paper conservator, and then I had a PhD on uh, conservation science, but it was quite early uh, when I got interest in Tibetan cultural area and started to uh, work uh, on Tibetan paper making and uh, yes, Central uh, Asia and Himalayas. Uh, so, in fact, it was uh, at the moment I chose uh, the subject for my uh, master uh, thesis and diploma, which was a conservation of uh, Tibetan book from Nepal. So that was a, I would say, starting point. And uh, soon after I realized when I start to search for information, so I would say, yeah, curiosity bring me here. <laughs> so uh, I uh, met many interesting people, Tibetologists, scholars, Tibetans, uh, and I realized that this uh, part of uh, knowledge discipline, my discipline is really uh, quite distant from uh, Tibetology and uh, also anthropological and historical studies. So I needed to build a bridge so to get uh, deeper into the uh, field. Uh, so, yeah, at that point I started uh, to do with my skills, uh, so the conservation and material research on books. Uh, and I just started to search for interesting collections which could bring me more information uh, on that subject, especially that I did not really 
uh, have uh, it, it was and even now it's not uh, it's this material side of books is rather uh, very often neglected so there are not many really uh, reference uh, literature and uh, interest on the other side on this so I think that's it that's great thank you so much and that also speaks a little bit to um, how you came to you know, produce this as a book length object as well and the book itself really wonderfully treats books not just as repositories of text, but as material objects. And one of the terms that you use to talk about this kind of approach toward understanding and studying books um, in terms of their materiality and their objectness very early in the introduction is the term archaeology. So can you maybe kind of start by bringing us into the book um, by talking about this term archaeology for you? What is the archaeology of the book and um, what do we need to understand about how you're using that concept to understand um, the work that you're doing here? Yeah, so in this field, uh, I had I found many terminological challenges, uh, uh, and uh, I use the term archaeology, and I like to use this term as in a, which I understand as a description of uh, physicality and historical context of the object. So it's very relevant to the term of codicology, I would say, in medieval, for example, uh, books, European books. Uh, uh, but uh, since codicology comes from codex and Tibetan books are in the loose leaves format, so I found it uh, better to use term archaeology, so it is why. Thank you so much. And so because the book really wonderfully takes us into the nature of the research that you did, um, the nature of the sources, and it's based on such a really fascinatingly interdisciplinary set of research methodologies. I'm going to be asking you a lot about that because I find it super fascinating. So let's sure. let's dive in. So the um, early in the book, you talk about um, the nature of the various source materials, so the collections of manuscripts and other books. Um, that you used as your um, kind of baseline uh, set of documents for the for the book. So I'd like to ask you to talk about um, just a couple of them. So for anybody who works on China or Silk Road studies or um, anything kind of um, in the context of global exchange or the medieval world, the, um, the term Dunhuang is going to ring some bells, right? Dunhuang being a really important site for um, a lot of recent studies of the Silk Road and beyond. So one of the uh, sets of books or sets of materials that you worked with are preserved Tibetan books from Dunhuang. So can you talk a little bit about those materials and the nature of that cache of Tibetan books as it um, influenced what you're doing here? Uh, sure, of course. Those are the, I would say, most important the basic uh, collection which I worked on. Uh, and I think that was the first collection of Tibetan books which was uh, somehow uh, noticed and uh, described by other scholars as the physical objects. And of course, it's very important find, and uh, it is in the British uh, Library, uh, but uh, not only in, the, in Paris, in National Library, and also in St. Petersburg. So those are uh, uh, collections, but mostly Tibetan manuscripts are in the British Library, and uh, that collection uh, allowed me uh, to write about, uh, to touch somehow this earlier, earlier, earliest part of uh, history of Tibetan books. Uh, of course, the, my general idea for the book was to select collections which could uh, give us insight into different periods of time. So to have some kind of uh, uh, chronology, I haven't really achieved this yet because it's. But I, I, I hope just uh, I was able to give uh, to the readers some ideas about particular uh, periods, not really chronology, because it's uh, very problematic in fact to date Tibetan books. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, but uh, this uh, Dunhuang Tibetan manuscripts, for example, uh, what was important during the work, uh, I collaborate. I was collaborating closely with uh, Dr. Sam Van Shaik, curator of uh, this Tibetan uh, collection in the British Library, and we found out, uh, out really many uh, interesting objects, because this is the crucial part to select 
particular books for research. <laughs> if you select them randomly, uh, it's very difficult to interpret results. So we had to have some idea where they are from or who wrote them or uh, about the context in general. And for example, with my paper research, I was able to identify paper in those uh, earliest dated Tibetan manuscripts from Dunhuang, which was the mid of 9th century. So, and it was a paper made of Daphne plants, for example. So, you know, that is this kind of information helps now to build the reference for the history of Tibetan books. Great. Thank you so much. And these um, these details, the fact that the paper was made from Daphne plants, um, this is actually something that becomes really, really important for understanding the history of these books as material objects. And we'll definitely get to some of that later in much more detail, I think. Mm-hmm, sure. So um, you mentioned early in this chapter the importance of taking a statistical approach to Tibetan books, right? This sort of um, issue of representativeness or representation. And you also mention um, a couple of other major groupings of kinds of books that you worked with. And I'll just mention these because they'll come up later. Early printed editions of Tibetan conjures and illuminated manuscripts from Western and Central Tibet. And so we'll talk about those, I'm sure, in much more detail um, in a bit. You also mention the importance of specific collections of Tibetan books um, in terms of you know, shaping the research here. And some of them are really fascinating. So I'd like to ask you to talk about one or two. You talk about the Ponder Collection. Am I pronouncing that right? P- Ponder? Uh, uh, yes. Okay. yes. Yes. So this is um, Eugen Ponder's 865 books originally in Berlin, now in Krakow. And that seems like a really, really important collection Um, in terms of the work that you did here. So can you talk a little bit about that collection for listeners? What's so important about it for the work that you're doing here? Yes, sure. That was one of the most important collections, I think, uh, which I was able to work uh, with uh, as well, uh, next to Dunhuang, of course. But uh, that was collection which uh, was deemed to be lost during the Second World War. Uh, And uh, that interesting thing about that it uh, contain uh, one of the first uh, printed uh, editions of uh, Tibetan Kanjur. In fact, it is uh, uh, Wanli Kanjur, which is the reprint of Yongle Kanjur, which was uh, printed in 1410, but this uh, Wanli Kanjur was printed in 1606, but that was done from uh, the same uh, wooden uh, blocks. And uh, this is extraordinary uh, collection uh, since uh, before we did not have originals, so we could not even be sure if it is really reprint or uh, we just had a mentions from before about it. And also history of this collection is very interesting uh, because uh, it was uh, uh, deemed uh, to be lost during the war and uh, finally it was uh, found, it was originally brought by Eugene Pander to uh, Berlin to Ethnographic Museum. Then it was offered to uh, the uh, Staatsbibliothek. Uh, And uh, then during the war it was uh, hidden during the last stages of the war, uh, during bombing, it was hidden in the uh, lower Silesia in uh, Firstenstein, Książ uh, in Polish uh, castle. And uh, then, after the war, the borders of the country were shifted, and lower Silesia uh, immediately uh, became the part of Polish territory. So, uh, after some time in the 40s, uh, this collection was found by Polish researchers and brought uh, via uh, uh, Krzeszów and uh, finally it found its place in the Jagiellonian University Library in Kraków. But for many years, it was not loudly told. So it was kind of secret uh, that uh, this collection was not damaged. So nobody really, even in 2000, uh, the great scholars, Dr. Eimer, uh, wrote uh, that this collection is probably damaged. <laughs> so that, and really a few years, a couple of years later, I just uh, during uh, uh, searching for Tibetan books in Poland for my PhD thesis, uh, so I found this collection. <laughs> so it was kind of, uh, yeah, very exciting uh, to, to work with this. And 
that uh, needed to start from the beginning because uh, we needed first to confirm uh, that it's really only conjure what was expected. So I was working with two colleagues from the University of Warsaw, uh, Professor Marek Mayer and uh, Dr. Tupten Kunga Chasab. So we all were able to confirm that this is really only and this is this important collection, so from 1606, uh, and it is uh, still there. And now uh, I re- I'm really happy that collection is uh, entirely available for all scholars, and it's no more secret and <laughs> no more yeah, situation like in the 70s or earlier. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And the, um, the introduction really takes us into stories about it really becomes a kind of mystery tale, right? Tracking down, um, trying to track down the origins of some of the um, col- uh, some of the books in the collections. You talk about checking out um, Ponder's connection with, in partic- you know, with the Yonghegong, right, an imperial monastery yes, in Beijing. Exactly. And there's all these stories about, you know, other books. So there's a mysterious folio in the Library of Congress, <laughs> which is like found by cleaners on the floor. This is just an amazing, uh, right, just an amazing set of stories for any bibliophile out there. So definitely <laughs> listeners who are interested in this kind of um, story, you know, set of stories about books, um, check out uh, the yes. introduction. Right? <laughs> I have to admit that this book brought me a bit into detective stories. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I felt sometimes a bit like like this, but yeah, that is also part of the histories of the collections, which is also important because, you know, now there are so many subjects uh, about, uh, uh, so many questions about ownerships of the collections, right? And those collections, especially Tibetan collections, really were brought from uh, many countries, places, owners. Mm-hmm. And now it's somehow, sometimes it's very difficult to answer such a question, who should be owner now or something like this. So it's, I hope also this kind of stories somehow contribute to better understanding of those, this kind of problems, I would say. Absolutely. So the research for the book included, um, as we've been talking about, studies of the history of Tibetan books and the history of particular collections, but it also included other kinds of research that were not based on um, those kinds of um, uh, sort of methodologies. So the, re- the book, as we've mentioned before, is very deeply interdisciplinary, and the research brought together what we might consider to be historical methods and scientific methods. Um, It brought together interviews, um, experiments, microscopy, all kinds of really diverse uh, modes of research to put together this story. So I'm going to, I'd love to ask you a little bit about that um, now. Mm -hmm. Um, So in an, on a, in addition to the kind of research that we've talked about, you talk about the importance of interviews that you did with Tibetan crafts, craftsmen and artisans. So can you maybe talk a little bit about that for you? What was, um, or what were some of the most important contributions that were made uh, from, uh, or on the basis of your interviews with Tibetan artisans? And were there any moments in those interviews um, that were surprising for you or that kind of dramatically changed or impacted how you were thinking about the topic? Mm, Yes, of course. It's uh, first, what uh, what what surprised me the most uh, uh, how uh, the same you know how Tibetans uh, can look at materiality of things materiality of books in this uh, case so it was always uh, very interesting for me to compare what I can read what um, what information I can derive uh, from uh, books. Uh, by scientific analysis, for example, or by observation, by descriptions in the libraries, and confront this with interviews, which, of course, they usually uh, refer to modern things, but tradition of bookmaking in uh, Tibetan areas, it's still like... uh, has not changed much, I would say. So it's still relevant. 
to go to compare this to the historical books even from earlier uh, centuries. Uh, but uh, the interesting point in all this was, for example, when I was we were talking and I was asking about the uh, paper. So they noticed totally different properties. Uh, for example, uh, for them it was uh, just uh, paper. Tibetan paper was uh, poisonous uh, uh, because uh, and very good quality and strong uh, because of uh, they know that uh, uh, it should be something special and not eaten by insects. From the scientific point of view, it is that this plant's properties are really a bit insect repellent, but not really poisonous word for word. Uh, Also, uh, regarding materials, for example, like uh, there are many myths in uh, those uh, information uh, which are coming from interviews, like uh, uh, somebody told me that uh, Tibetan scriptures is the best, uh, the, the highest quality were written with stone pen. Of course, in reality, it was not possible. Probably it was uh, wooden stick or bamboo pen hard as a stone or something like this. So a lot of this kind of stories uh, and differences in between interviews and material research, uh, which I noticed were really, I think, interesting. Right. I think um, there's one moment in the book where you talk about a myth of the dark surface of paper being produced by uh, with the use of ashes of llamas, right? Yeah. I mean, really, it's it's kind of an amazing um, set of stories, right? There's also some really interesting stories surrounding the use of blood, um, human blood as a pigment. Yeah. Books. Wow. So in addition to interviews with Tibetan artisans and craftsmen, you also um, conducted what it seemed, what seems to me to be from the book and from the amazing images, right, and descriptions that you give us, um, quite a bit of experiments. And you describe um, part of the practice of research here in terms of experimental mm-hmm. manuscriptology, personally reconstructing some of the techniques and copying fragments in some cases of books. Mm -hmm. Um, So that seems to be really, really important here. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, How, what were some of the challenges, or what were some of the most important uh, moments of, or aspects of that research for you? And were there any special challenges in reconciling that kind of research with the Mm -hmm. other forms of research that you did for the book? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that is a very important uh, part. For me, it was kind of, uh, you know, this sphere was like a kind of exercises to check really uh, how far the information I'm getting from, for example, interview can be true, right? And also what was very helpful, of course, I started as artist, so it was kind of natural for me. If I was not sure what could be used, I could check, right? So that's uh, the same uh, thing uh, with uh, types of paper, for example. When you write, depending on uh, on how uh, the uh, plant's uh, properties influence the final uh, results of, uh, for example, calligraphy, right? So calligraphy, in fact, you know, everybody uh, can talk about, uh, for example, so paleographers or uh, type of scripts or type of calligraphy, right? But it is very rare that somebody thinks really how materials influence the style. Mm-hmm. So by exercising this, by trying to write with the same pen, for example, on the different types of paper, mm-hmm. helped me a lot to understand it. Or, you know, how Tibetans can change the properties of ink. In fact, we do not really have... Uh, it's very difficult to trace some products really to the beginning. So we have some general... Also, by scientific results, we can also, for example, uh, identify the main materials. But all the tricks, I would say, which help to really keep this uh, ink good and uh, possible uh, to use was uh, just also by adding some other substances to have the ink more thick or more diluted or preserved better in the summertime or whatever. So this kind of things, uh, I could exper- make some experiment, I think, and uh, that it would help a lot in many fields, in fact, just to add some practice to theory. Thank you so much. And there's um, an entire chapter, so chapter two, that's devoted to exploring these methods and the importance of these methods for understanding 
the history um, and the sort of materiality of the books as you're giving them to us here. So in, in addition to talking about the importance of creating a kind of typology of Tibetan books, you talk in this chapter about the importance of um, the kinds of tools to, as you put it, read what's not written. So this includes understanding the preparation of book leaves, understanding inks and pigments, understanding the analysis of paper, and we'll get to that, I'm sure, in much more detail, and also understanding um, dating, right? Sort of how it is that um, we can go about creating a history that's based on even rough dating of the books. So because that last part seems really, um, really kind of challenging, right, and really important, can you talk a little bit about that, how did you go about dating these books, and what were some of the major challenges of that? Mm -hmm. uh, yes, as I said before, it was, I think, the most challenging part. Mm -hmm. It was, of course, my general idea to find a collection for particular periods of uh, time, uh, but really to date a book by materials, it's rather rare. It is possible because when you have a refer, refer if we have references for the development of crafts like paper making on, uh, or other materials uh, production, but the problem with Asia in general and especially in this uh, Himalayan region is that those things have not changed much and definitely not enough to date books just on this basis. But if we overlap this knowledge with uh, some typologies of formats, of page layout, all uh, material types, which I would say materials are very important in the context of regional origin. It gives this space on chronology and geography, I would say. And the best thing and what I found the most uh, useful, it was just overlap uh, as many information as possible, as many features as possible and typologies of it. So this way only, I think, worked sometimes. Okay. So my research, I would say, are much more useful in the finding region of the origin <laughs> A bit less about dating. However, dating, it was possible in further perspective, mostly in collaboration also with other scholars who, who studied the texts and who could uh, somehow add other hints. So if we see in the end that this uh, points to the same uh, ideas, so we could somehow also date in this way. But if the informations are scattered and not clear, so it's just better to wait for more sources. Thank you so much. And you just mentioned something that's actually really important for what's happening in the next part of the book, which is using a study of the materiality of these books and the paper and the pigments to try to get at um, something about the origins of the books. Where were they produced, right? Where were, mm -hmm. um, were these made? And so you talk about the importance of materiality um, in those terms in several different ways. One of the most important ways, of course, is understanding the paper. So mm -hmm. in, under, in identifying and studying paper, you talk here about um, several aspects of that material um, characteristic of books that are important, including uh, the raw material that's used, the type of papermaking mold that's used, the, the way that leaves are prepared before writing or printing on them, which includes you know, kind of sizing, um, which uh, it affects the surface, flattening, polishing, sometimes with a conch shell, sometimes with stone, right? The color of the paper. And so you talk about the different aspects that, you know, we otherwise might very much take for granted um, when reading a book. Now, as we get to that, um, we get into the fourth chapter. So because um, it seems like one of the most important kinds of evidence that you're using here, that you're showing us for understanding where these books were made has to do with the materiality of the paper. Let's talk about that in terms of Tibetan books. So can you talk um, a little bit about really the, the raw materials of this paper? What are some of the most important materials used in Tibetan paper making? And how, do, um, how does understanding those materials help us understand where these books were likely produced? Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, 
the most uh, typical raw materials for making Tibetan books uh, are, first of all, Timalasi family plants. So at the level, and I can identify them, are mainly two types of components. So one would be Daphne or Edgewortia, uh, the bust phloem of the uh, shrubs from this uh, species. Uh, in fact, I cannot really clearly identify it in between Daphne and Edgewortia, so it is why I leave it as a one type. But the, on the other side, we have very interesting uh, raw material, which is uh, Stellera uh, hamajasme, which is uh, Rechakpa in Tibetan, which is the bust of the root of the plant. Mm-hmm. which grows uh, from above uh, 300 uh, for uh, 3,400 or something like this in the Himalayas up to 5,000 uh, and sometimes uh, even a bit more. So it definitely it differs comparing to the distribution of Daphne, which grows, uh, or Edgar Wartia, which grows in the valleys and definitely below uh, 3,500 uh, or 3,000 and lower. Uh, so that's the uh, important uh, thing to notice and to think about it uh, at all, because it is clearly uh, possible, uh, it is possible to clearly differentiate in between Stellera and Daphne and Edgewortia. Uh, so we can know uh, by knowing the paper production and all the technology uh, and uh, also quality which uh, particular plants give. Uh, so for example, uh, Daphne is uh, uh, allows to make a better Daphne and Edgewortia, better quality papers than Stellera. Uh, and the difference is somehow uh, like uh, uh, Daphne has a bit uh, uh, more rigid fibers, uh, a bit more stable, stronger. And Stellera, uh, it, the fibers are a bit, uh, we could say, in, on the microscopic, uh, on the mic- uh, true microscopy, uh, it has some resemblance to cotton. So the properties of papers, not, not directly, but I would say in the way of properties uh, of papers and uh, later. So the Stellera are very soft fibers. So when you produce the larger sheet of paper, it's uh, not stable enough in, in a large formats. Mm-hmm. And also for uh, for uh, manuscripts, uh, sometimes it's paper becomes too absorptive. Uh, since uh, uh, and comparing to Daphne, Daphne has the natural uh, uh, sizing element. So the fibers, uh, in fact, are uh, features uh, uh, that uh, they, this paper does not really. Tibetans did not use any other uh, glue uh, for the singular sheet, for example. Of course, they then glued the leaves of the book of layers, so it is another uh, another technological development. But, uh, for example, Stellera, with those properties, uh, is uh, much better for printing because it gives the softness and uh, possibility to take inks when you touch the paper leaf to the wooden block. Actually, so, oh, sorry, yeah. go on. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to ask you, since you just um, brought up, um, sorry for interrupting, <laughs> since, okay. since you just brought up um, manuscripts and also prints, right? Um, mm-hmm. This is something that you actually talk about in this part of the book in chapter four. For listeners um, who may not really be familiar with this aspect of what you're uh, writing about, and because it's really, really important, um, more you know, more broadly speaking, in terms of book history and book studies right now, can you talk in the context of Tibet, or at least in the context of the materials you're working on, about how we should understand the relationship between these two forms, uh, manuscript and print culture? Mm-hmm. Um, how, can you talk a little bit about that relationship between manuscript and print? Yes, sure. Uh, it's uh, Tibet is very exceptional on this side because uh, it's just uh, manuscript cultures and printing cultures are simultaneously has been developed 
since uh, until now uh, uh, even. So uh, in Europe, for example, we have, you know, before uh, Gutenberg, we have the uh, manuscript cultures. And then we, uh, when the printing culture started, uh, almost manuscripts, you know, became very rare and uh, not really uh, any more uh, useful in the same way. And in Tibet, both uh, books, manuscripts and print, uh, prints were simultaneously produced. It seems like they uh, maybe uh, it developed this way for different uh, purposes, for example. Uh, however, uh, of course, we can ask uh, questions and try to understand only why it developed this way. Uh, my personal view on this is that uh, simply uh, manuscripts, uh, as the they sometimes uh, they were produced as a special offering objects, very rich, very richly decorated with uh, uh, stones uh, uh, attached to it, with uh, gold uh, used for writing. So it was sometimes, uh, uh, it, it, yeah, they were object, offering objects or objects of rituals as well, and uh, they uh, were uh, kept in the special libraries uh, or, uh, you know, for special uh, patrons uh, and uh, donors. So uh, that that's why probably they have been produced even in 20th century that way. And printing culture, of course, uh, it helped to, to disseminate word of the Buddha quicker, uh, as, uh, as we know. But uh, on the other hand, uh, Still, I feel like this printing projects in Tibet, they were so huge. So they involved hundreds of people sometimes, mm -hmm. particular craftsmen like the uh, uh, scribes, uh, uh, yeah, paper makers, uh, printers, uh, correctors, editors, donors, of course, sponsor of the project. So they were really large projects. Uh, and uh, in this context, we sometimes uh, can have feelings that if Somebody wanted to produce or gain spiritual merit uh, just from preparing one copy of the book, maybe just simple manuscript without involving expensive materials and uh, special technologies. It could be easier than to organize big printing projects. So maybe that is reason why this simplistic, uh, uh, simple conditions uh, in Tibet and, uh, you know, the needs very specific needs of people uh, created this situation that we have both printing and manuscripts cultures at the same time. Thank you so much. Um, I think that's really, really helpful. And also I'll mention for listeners that in chapter four, um, you actually talk about the importance of patronage, right, for book production and take us into some of the material aspects of some of these very richly illuminated um, and decorated manuscripts, including you know, painted borders and frontispieces, including the um, practice sometimes of painting the edges of a book in a particular color to ward off insects. So there's actually this really interesting um, uh, sort of material uh, significance to some of the colors that were used to sort of ward off um, being eaten by insects. And interestingly, and I, I think a really interesting contrast to some of the recent book studies from other areas of the world is you emphasize the rarity of doodles, right, of marginal drawings and doodle drawings. I think there's one doodle of a dragon on page 95 um, for listeners who are particularly interested in that, but otherwise you, you note that um, perhaps because of these special conditions you've mentioned, there really are not many surviving doodles and manuscript, um, just kind of scribbles on these drawings, on these uh, pages, right? Yes, yes, uh, but you can find more within Dunhuang collection in the British Library, for example, but also on some, I noticed this uh, on some bone manuscripts in uh, Columbia University Library, so they are rare, of course, mm -hmm. but still it is possible to, to, to find those kind of illustrations. <laughs> yeah, I can do those. Thank you. So um, the chapter four, before we move on, I'll also mention, um, has some really wonderful discussions of, you know, format and bookbinding style, of the importance of, of particular styles of calligraphy, of ink, uh, different materials used as pigments, including blood, um, which is really interesting. Um, and this is really important when taken 
together with the discussion of paper in part, because I think you're really helping us see these pages in a completely different way. I mean, it, it, in some of these discussions, you literally help us see the text and read it in a completely new way by pointing out, um, you know, aspects of the shape of certain letters that you, based on your experience, right, and your um, craft and your research, um, you know, were probably made with certain kinds of carving tools. And I mean, that's just amazing um, to sort of help us really to change the way we see. Um, so I, I just want to thank you for that. Um, thank you for <laughs> telling about it. Uh, it's, it's just, uh, uh, yeah, for, of course, my uh, reason as a researcher was somehow to try to uh, uh, say something more about origins uh, uh, and uh, just the former things. But also, of course, I wanted to show to these books because we had very basic information before in the written sources uh, or just, you know, the uh, common view was just potty books and not much more. And they are really, there's a great variety in everything and format and page layouts and decorations. So, and all those elements are important and they are totally different from European book culture, of course, but also different from Chinese and from uh, all others. So it's really uh, many typically Tibetan elements in, in, in this. What are some of the most important aspects of the differences between Tibetan and Chinese um, uh, sort of um, production in this way? I mean, you, you mentioned um, kinds of paper mm -hmm. being really different, um, uh, but can you, can you talk a little bit about that for listeners who might be China specialists who might be particularly mm -hmm. interested in those distinctions. Of course. Uh, so the uh, yeah formats papers. I would start from this. Uh, so uh, for example, this potty format of Tibetan books, this loose leaf format, it's coming uh, originally uh, somehow from Indian culture, from the books on palm leaves called uh, Pustaka. So Tibetans tried to uh, resemble, to keep the tradition from uh, of making uh, books uh, from that side, uh, and it is why we have those uh, books uh, form. However, of course, we did not have a palmist in Tibet, so they had to use paper. So paper probably uh, came from uh, ability to make a paper uh, came from uh, China so or from Central Asia. Uh, so, uh, But it was no more limit of the format because uh, that was no reason to make such a narrow list like palmist. So because paper allows for a bit larger format. It is why we have different sizes of uh, books, which are very specific and characteristic for uh, Tibetan book culture. Uh, also, this uh, fact of uh, gluing uh, of book leaves of layers. And I would, uh, and uh, immediately here we uh, can point the difference in paper in Chinese and Tibetan paper. For example, there are some Tibetan books on Chinese paper, quite many, especially those first edition of Tibetan countries, uh, which were produced in Beijing. So it uh, also uh, answers why on uh, Chinese paper and Chinese uh, materials. Uh, so, for example, Tibetan paper is much thicker and stronger, in fact. So, Chinese paper was produced mostly, you know, Chinese were written with a brush at the uh, first of all. So the paper had to be absorbent, paper had to be thin, uh, the aesthetic was different. Paper, uh, good qualities were just uh, white as well. So, and Tibetan paper, because the production of paper was simpler, much simpler. So we have irregularities in thickness. So, in fact, it was sometimes not uh, nice and not stable enough to produce large format from just one layer. It is probably they glued the leaves of uh, books of layers, of many layers. And also, probably, maybe they also wanted to make it similar somehow to palm leaves, mm -hmm. to make it thicker. But that is, you know, just hypothesis. Uh, but it would explain why they create a book in uh, this way. Uh, of course, we have the main difference comes from raw materials. Chinese use totally different uh, raw materials, starting from rag paper, then uh, paper mulberries and mulberries, uh, then rami, uh, hemp, 
uh, right? So that this create different properties and different character of paper. <laughs> so this and writing tools, I think, basically, this makes this uh, difference uh, in between. Thank you so much. Um, that's really helpful, I think, and really interesting uh, to think about this in a kind of comparative framework. Now, you alluded to um, several times already um, the importance of the conjure, right? We've talked about this. And you've talked a little bit about, um, in terms of the relationship between manuscript and print cultures, some of these major printing, like multi-year, just major, major printing endeavors that involved, you know, proofreaders, mm-hmm. scholars, wood collectors, and you, t- you talk us through um, the stages of production of some of these massive, massive printing endeavors um, from, you know, collecting the wood, um, uh, carving the wood. There were doctors on staff, right? I mean, there were mm-hmm. you know, greasing sure. the blocks with melted butter and the printing. So it's super fascinating and really, really an interesting part of the book. Now, can you, uh, for listeners who are not as familiar with this notion of, you know, the conjure, um, or who may not understand why it's uh, it would be so useful to look at editions of the Tibetan Buddhist canon for the for your purposes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Why is um, or why are editions of the Tibetan Buddhist canon so useful for studying um, what you're studying in here? Uh, yeah, for for me, they were really useful to look at them as a, a significance in the yeah, printing culture and also uh, character to see regionality. Mm-hmm. So because uh, they were uh, produced, the Tibetan uh, uh, particular editions of Tibetan Kanjo were produced in different places. Uh, for example, in Beijing, like the first one, uh, Yonglen, uh, Wanli. Uh, then we have uh, like uh, Chone or in the uh, farther to the uh, west. Uh, then we have the Lhasa area, right, uh, with a uh, central Tibet Nartang uh, Lhasa Kanjo later. So we are moving geographically and uh, also in time, and uh, we can observe different uh, developing of technologies. And the technologies in this case are also, and materials especially, are regional. And also this kind of study helps us uh, in some cases to identify the uh, workshops of uh, uh, of printers, right? The printing projects. So by comparing, for example, uh, all measurements in the page layouts, we can somehow group uh, this. Why all of this? Of course, if we know exactly what we uh, are analyzing, it's not the point. But there are many, many prints and Tibetan books which are still scattered around the world in uh, Western museums, library collections, which are simply not identified. Mm-hmm. And especially in the 20th century, after, you know, cultural revolution, and many books were really somehow detached from their places. Mm-hmm. So there, uh, it's very often we really need to know what we are dealing with. So my idea and my purpose was to build this kind of references because uh, the text in particular edition is is very difficult to really uh, somehow uh, classify the edition on the basis of text only. And I think for many years also Tibetologists has been working on the uh, uh, on the microforms, so they've never really seen even originals. Right. So that is the thing which I really, it is. it was my main goal, main aim, somehow to show, to add this another layer of possibilities of research. And, and that's actually really increasingly difficult to do, at least from, from the perspective of Chinese studies. More and more um, libraries and rare books collections and archival collections are not letting scholars use the original, like see the originals. In fact, you know, they're, they're transferring things to microform, at least in China, and it's becoming increasingly difficult to do that kind of research. Yes, exactly. And also that uh, now we touch my another uh, aim and uh, goal, uh, you know, looking uh, from the point that the digital culture, right, is now really very rapidly developing. So uh, we are going in this direction. So uh, the physical books somehow stayed behind. And 
with my book, I wanted to show that uh, it is really important and we uh, may really add to our research if we still look at those books. Did you have, I mean, in the course of your research, just, you know, since we're kind of on this topic, were there any um, cases in which there was a real challenge or a particularly notable challenge in getting access to some of these physical materials that you needed to in order to do this research? Uh, I think I was, uh, of course, some places are more <laughs> difficult than <laughs> others. <laughs> I, I would not like, you know, to point to right, particular oh, ones, no, right? Course, but, but I would say uh, I was, I have been very lucky to meet right people <laughs> along, <laughs> all along my work, which were really curators and librarians, which were really very helpful and supportive for my work. However, of course, uh, when I tried to access uh, materials also during the field work, right, in China or in uh, uh, Himalayas, on, it's, sometimes it is, uh, it is difficult. It's uh, very accidental. Sometimes everything works and it's great and sometimes it's simply impossible because of course libraries have uh, uh, own rules and uh, sometimes you cannot simply see or touch original right that's right so in the book so as we kind of make our way through and come to um, the last part of the book I'll just note for listeners that in chapter five there's some really wonderful discussions of the production of and, and the kind of early editions and some later editions of some of these major printing endeavors, um, uh, especially the Tibetan Buddhist canon. So there's some comparative and really, really interestingly detailed discussions of um, this kind of early edition of the Tibetan conjure produced in Beijing, Mongolian conjures, and Tibetan conjures that are produced in Tibet and the Tibetan borderland. So um, there's some really interesting stuff there for readers who are interested in that. And then there's also a whole chapter that I'm not going to ask you to talk too much more <laughs> about um, because we could easily spend another two hours on this chapter. <laughs> Uh, but there's a, a very detailed, very, very rich chapter that surveys Tibetan paper. Kind of everything you'd ever wanted to know, right, about Tibetan paper in chapter six, which goes into some of the really important microscopic analyses that we've been alluding to. It talks about the importance of Buddhist monks for spurring and spreading paper making, um, kind of talks about the differences and the relationships between um, Tibetan and Chinese paper making and also um, talks about some of the really um, crucial tools and technologies of papermaking, including the kind of collection of raw material, the boiling, the beading, the molding. So it's a really fascinating chapter for all of those purposes. But this final chapter is, is really important and interesting as well. So I want to make sure we talk a little bit about that. And this is a chapter on conservation. Now, in this chapter, you talk about the particular challenges posed to the conservation of Tibetan books due to the significance of these books as sacred and ritual objects. So could you um, talk a little bit about that? Sort of what, um, what for you is important for us to understand about these challenges of conservation, specifically with respect to Tibetan books? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a difficult chapter to write and decide about the structure uh, of it. Uh, but uh, what was important for me, uh, I wanted to show that uh, since the approach to conservation and restoration in Europe and in Tibet is very much different. So just for those not familiar, I would say only that in European conservation, we mostly want to preserve historical substance and to add or just to not change it, to not to, yeah, to, to not uh, add anything. But in Tibet, mostly people understand the conservation as replacement mm-hmm. into with new things, the old thing with new thing, because it has to be useful. Of course, the books are sacred, so they are not true out. Uh, out. They are often buried in the stupas or they are uh, burned sometimes, but it, it means totally different things than in Europe. So even starting from this point, uh, we have to think how to 
preserve those objects. And uh, in my opinion, we should really think also about Tibetan people. It's not only that we want to do in our way, right? <laughs> so it's it's uh, it's necessary to uh, somehow find a way which uh, which will be the most useful to preserve cultures as well. So I tried to somehow describe only a couple of practical methods, so the uh, s- places where the books are, the preservations and storage uh, problems. So I wanted to show in this chapter most of the problems we have, right? And uh, I did not try to give, uh, you know, detailed answer to, to, to everything. Yeah, but I still, I just wanted to make a reader more familiar with, with, with the subject. And also in the context that many books were really uh, damaged in the 20th century. And as I mentioned before, many are detached from the original places. And we have Tibetan books almost now all around the world in museum and library collections. And those objects really need special care. We cannot conserve them as we usually do with European books or with other books Mm -hmm. from other cultures. So they are specific because of the materials, because of the technologies, uh, technologies. So we need to consider exactly materials and how those books were made originally to understand the process of uh, deterioration mm-hmm. to decide also about the methods. Mm-hmm. So that was my goal, I guess. Thank you so much. And this is um, this chapter is useful, not just because it runs through and describes, you know, many of the typical ways that Tibetan books get damaged, sort of sources of that damage, and some selected procedures, as you give us um, here in the book, for conservation um, of these materials, but also really, I think, helps us think anew about what conservation means, right? And you, you make the point, I think, very effectively early in this chapter that what it means to preserve an object for one group of people may look like destroying it to another. And that's actually really, really important, I think, for how we think about what conservation means conceptually and how to sort of work across and with all of these different communities um, in the way that might be most productive. So so now that we're at the end of the book, um, I'll just mention for listeners, there are also a series of really useful appendices that describe in detail um, some of the items from some of the major collections you're working on, some of the features of the paper in a lot of those I- items. Um, there's trans- an appendix that's just devoted to transcription of Yongle covers. Um, and there's also just a lot of, um, that is to say, material in just the appendices that we are not talking about in detail. <laughs> that's just really rich um, archival uh, fabric for um, many, many other studies. So the book is not just a report on your research, but it also offers a lot of material to enable the research of others, um, hopefully many years into the future. So Agnieszka, um, we've talked about a lot of the book, but of course there's a million billion things we didn't talk about. <laughs> is, there, is there anything in particular um, that we haven't talked about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book. Mm. Yeah, I, I think the main thing I would like to mention here, maybe uh, just to summarize, uh, that uh, at the present point where uh, with the all development of digi- digital culture, digital war, digital books, uh, so uh, I wanted uh, really bring uh, to bring attention of people to those uh, original objects and uh, also to uh, to write this book not only for uh, scholars of tibetology or paper conservation but also for those who are not uh, as familiar with the subject just to show how beautiful 
objects they are, those uh, Tibetan books, and to somehow encourage to encourage uh, people to look uh, at at this. So I, I I guess that's that's it. I cannot think now what I. <laughs> and and that's actually really helpful because it also um, reminds me to mention something that I really love about the book, which is the um, the images and the illustrations. There's just tons and tons of beautiful um, color images of the paper, um, the the fibers you're talking about, but also the pages, um, the, you know, the ways that these books are shaped. So it's a really beautiful archive of images of Tibetan books and paper as well. So Agnieszka, now that the book is out and congratulations on the book, what's next for you? Um, what, What are you working on now? Oh, I would mention here, I would mention two things. Uh, I'm completing now uh, another book from my very recent project on uh, the paper roads, a case for Central Asian origins. Uh, it is uh, uh, basically about the history of paper in Central Asia, those earliest part, and uh, I just try to put some more hypothesis into origins. So that is one thing. And the other thing is uh, I'm starting also now project on material analysis of archival uh, documents from Nepal uh, Mustang. So that is another thing I'm going to work for uh, next uh, couple of years. Well, best of luck with that work. Um, We'll look forward to those coming out as well. And thanks again. It really was a pleasure. Um, And thanks very much for making the time. Thank you very much (laughs) to you, Carla. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.